it's it's all connected you know and it's then better i think more efficiently repaired and more efficiently understood if you understand quantum field because at quantum levels you can actually heal a lot faster and in exponential ways and effortlessly my name is dr lana bachmaro and you're listening to the lifestyles podcast with luke story I'll tell you what, man, I am so excited to share this episode with you. It is going to be a game changer for those of you that want to work on your cognitive function. It's episode 376. It's called Think Interfaces, the Ultimate Brain Upgrade for Dopamine, Focus, PTSD, Mood, and Anxiety. And I don't think I've been excited about an episode like this in a very long time. Because during the period of time that this was recorded, I had the opportunity to go through Dr. Lana's brain training, and uh, quite frankly, it has completely transformed my life, or at least the part of my life that's controlled by my brain, and that's a lot of it. Stay tuned for more details on that. In the meantime, today's sponsors are magbreakthrough.com slash Luke. They make an incredible magnesium product, unparalleled in my opinion. And then we've got lukestory.com slash Leela which is all the Leela quantum tech stuff. Oh man, super, super space age, wild. That's lukestory.com slash Leela. And then finally, getsuperleaf.com slash Luke for some fantastic Kratom products from a company called Super Speciosa. That's getsuperleaf.com slash Luke. And here are some bragging rights on our very brilliant guest and my friend, Dr. Lana Morrow. She's a PhD neuroscientist, CEO, and founder and creator of Think Systems. She is a Galileo 2000 award winner, recognized as a pioneer in brain-computer interfaces and neuroeconomy. Dr. Morrow earned a doctoral degree in cognitive neuroscience from Sepienza University in Rome, Italy, was a visiting researcher at the Sorbonne in Paris, and has completed her postdoctoral training at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, performing EEG brain mapping techniques in dopamine research, as well as Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, Her skills also include treatment of learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, and the differential diagnosis of complex brain disorders. And as a neuroscientist, she conducts research collaborations with major universities in Europe and the United States. Her think system is a non-invasive approach for remediation of attentional and movement-related disorders. She's super passionate about helping her clients who are both accomplished professionals and students to elevate their focus, memory, brain resilience, longevity, and sports and cognitive performance. And I got to say, she's definitely done that for me. Above and beyond all of that, Dr. Lana is not only a brilliant scientist, as you might have guessed by now, but she's also someone who has devoted her life to service and healing. And uh, that's something I really like to highlight on this show, as you know. So here are a few of the nugs served up in this powerful conversation. Lana's extensive education and expertise in science. Lana then teaches us about neurochemistry, dopamine, serotonin, tryptophan, and endogenous DMT. We talk brain physiology, the important role played by the different parts of the brain, like the frontal cortex, amygdala, and the cerebellum. The purpose of the glands in our brain and why the pineal gland is such a huge player in quality of life. The important function of the pituitary gland, how PTSD and ADHD manifest in the brain, Dr. Lana's very impressive work with Parkinson's, the difference between neurofeedback and think training, the unique permanence of think's benefits, think's effects on OCD and addictions. We also talk about Lana's thoughts on microdosing, psychedelics, and nootropics. And finally, how you can work with Lana and experience the think training yourself. 
I have to say that nothing I've tried over the years has even come close to the lasting benefits I've seen from doing my first six think training sessions. The mental clarity and focus I experience now is literally off the charts. It's the highest ever in my life, and that's no exaggeration. And it's been a while since I did this training, so it's not like I did it yesterday and I'm all hyped up. I mean, it's really been incredible. So I've sent many of my friends to see Lana, and all of them have reported similar results. If you're someone who, like me, has a sense that you're not accessing your full mental capacity and intelligence, I highly recommend that you explore the possibility of working with Dr. Lana. Now, this is going to be available to all people. Uh, it's not cheap, as you might guess, for something that's effective. But for those of you that are interested in doing so, she's been very generous and has offered Lifestylist listeners an exclusive 10% off discount, which is substantial and takes a few hundred dollars off the regular price. So if by the end of this episode you think, wow, I want to look into this, uh, you can hit up their website at thinkinterfaces.com. And if you just mention Luke 10, they're going to give you that discount. That's thinkinterfaces.com, which you can easily find in the show notes of most podcast apps. Okay, I think we've thoroughly teed this one up for you. Without further fanfare, I offer to you the trailblazing neuroscientist herself, Dr. Lana Morrow. Dr. Lana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm stoked, man. We're finally so, getting down to this. I remember you have to help me with the memory of one part of this because I don't remember how we were introduced, but I remember our first phone conversation. I do. I was on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles, I think near Stanley, right in front of International Silks and Woolens. And I remember pulling the car over and we were just having a chat and somehow the work of Dr. David Hawkins came up. Yes. And then Vedic meditation, two things that have really had such a positive impact on my life. Right. And we, and then we started talking about quantum physics and all this stuff. And I was like, this lady is cool. We got to do an interview. And here we are. That must have been, I don't two know. Years ago, two, three years yeah, ago. two, three years ago. Yeah, two, years ago. Yeah. But I just have such an aversion to doing, you know, remote interviews. I had yes. planned to come to New York City uh, to do some sessions with you and interview you there. And then we all know what happened in New York City. Exactly. Uh, you had to flee. But remind me, how did we first get introduced? Do you remember? I think it was either through Tom Noss and his work on Vedic meditation that we kind of chatted about, or there was something else as well. Oh, you know what? We met first when you were with Sa, Simone, and some other people oh. in New York City. Remember there was a... Oh, we did. We had met in Andrea person. That's Pratt right. organized that. I forgot their group. That was What was it called? Um uh, 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 that's where I met Allison. It was, um, Whitma. Whitma. Yeah. That's where I first met you. That's right. Introduced by Andrea Pratt. And we were there also with some other people who, you know, just very beautiful people, Sadie Simone and yeah. some other people. Yeah. And that's the, that's the event at that which I event. met Allison. That's, yeah. Oh, cool. But, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. that's, wow. What a fruitful event that was. That's funny. I forgot we yeah. had actually met briefly in person. Yeah, briefly I, in person. Because yeah. I just remember that phone call. And yeah. I was like, oh. Me too. I remember we're gonna that get along phone call great. very, very clearly. I was actually at home and sitting in my home office and um, just thinking, and at a certain point you said, oh, we need to do a podcast. And we just kept talking and talking, talking. And it was just like, you know, one of those things that you know, when you know, you know, yeah. it's like really, we, we think the same way. Yeah, <laughs> there is, absolutely. There is beautiful connection and really amazing co-productions that can happen. And it's, I often have, I often have conversations like that and think, I wish I had my mics with me. Because mm -hmm. sometimes like 
when you very first meet someone, it's that immediate rapport you have and there's just magic that ensues. And I always think, oh man, I should have captured this. That's what you said then. Yeah. Yeah. But here we are. But here we are. It's perfect. Uh, and, and now what's really cool is I've gotten to experience firsthand uh, right. what we're going to be mm-hmm. talking about today. Think interfaces uh, for those listening. I just did a session right before I set all my stuff up. And usually before I record, I just get a lot of anxiety because of uh-huh. all the technical stuff, because yeah. it kind of puts me in my left brain and I'm like working equipment and mm-hmm. plugging all the things in and doing all the things. And then I've learned to find ways to switch and kind of mm-hmm. sync my hemispheres a bit and get more into my creative flow so I can have empathy in a conversation. But it, it always takes a lot of um, work to do so. And I sat down with you and I'm just like, after that training, I'm just totally hey, dialed just in. just blissed together. Yeah, it's amazing. I, feel, I actually don't even feel like talking, which is funny. So you're going to do a lot of talking, Lana. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. I want to start out with this. What is the most exciting, fulfilling thing going on in your life right now today? Oh, it's so wonderful to think that way and just put me on the spot, but I'm going to go from the heart. You know, yes, as a brain specialist, I can talk about brains, but the best thing about think is actually is um, think with your heart and feel with your brain. So I'm going to think with my heart now and tell you, I think ascension is magical. You know, we're now in this process of ascension where we've been, we all came here to actually elevate humanity and go to the next levels. And I, I just get shivers when I even think about it because I know that we all are here to elevate everybody to the next 5D and beyond and create, co-create this new earth, which we're all talking. So that's super exciting to me. And that's why partially I created the system and uh, one of the things is that, so that's that's one of the beautiful things about it, and how it ties, you know, what I do uh, into this five, fifth-dimensional reality. So not only does it heal people, especially people who have PTSD and trauma. Now, um, I work with them. I have the honor of working with a lot of people, children and adults, and it goes away. It, you know, we go into 5D, into bliss. And uh, all the hurt and pain from PTSD goes away. And we can talk about vertical time and dropping into vertical time and healing the past. And it all happens in in quantum time, which means rather fast or in no time, (laughs) a little bit like LASIK, you know? So it's all quantum field that we love and it's really beneficial to everything. And we just glow and grow. And that way we usher millions of people up there to the next level. And the more consciousness we have about it, the better it is. And I think um, the bliss of having this technology as well and being able to honorably help so many people is such a, such a joy every day. And I stay in this 5D bliss most of the time. You know, it's like funny, but it's, it's where we are, you know, as you can say, we, we're blissing and it's fine. And it's always like that when you go to the next level. And I think that's very exciting. And another thing that is super exciting is that these new creations that I'm creating, expanding the company and creating um, other technologies with some really fabulous people, meeting you and Alison, going, you know, maybe even thinking about uh, transferring to this beautiful uh, land here of the free. I'm voting for that. I, 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 I hope that comes to fruition. Oh, I was, I was thinking about it yesterday and I found myself 
kind of the controlling getting what I want side. I was like, I got to find a way to work it out so Lana can move here. And, well, and I, you. you know, setting an intention is one thing, but then I also realized I was like, hey, she's going to end up wherever she's meant to end up. But I'm hoping that karmically this is the spot because there's, I think, yeah, there are so many incredibly beautiful and brilliant people here that I yes, just I just know you would you've already aligned with quite a few of them so well you shared your friendships with me yeah. so I'm so grateful and there are so many more and they're mm. just people that are doing great things in the world and many of them are also you know influential and excited about discovering people like you and your work and helping you get out there I'm not yeah. the only one that does the kind of thing that I do here so it's just so beautiful yeah but I even if you it. even if you just come visit a lot we'll we'll be happy to have yeah. you so um I'm I think that for actually really um at least for six months and then we see what happens cool but I definitely resonate with this land and this lake Travis yeah. just magical yeah we gotta we gotta hit up Micah and see if we can get out on his boat get yes. on the lake yeah, that's super fun. Yes, I'm seeing you. I mean, you're from you're from uh, Italy. Yeah, and I've not been to Italy, but I have been once to the Mediterranean to Majorca, Spain. Yeah, and being on Lake Travis reminds me of some parts of Majorca. Yeah. I think it's yeah. it's a similar kind of terrain. The water looks similar. There's this arid desert sea kind of rocks topography it's just yeah. yeah it kind of reminds me of that sometimes and yeah. it's, it's it's really like i said the same yeah it's unexpected I, w I wasn't thinking texas would have that i don't know what i yeah. thought it would have but it's kind of nice you're out oh, on the lake and you're like gorgeous land yeah it is people are so beautiful especially those that you introduced me to but even those few that i met on my own here in a hotel and the, it's just beautiful so yeah. i feel blissed and blessed it's kind of southern hospitality i know some yes. people in the texas don't count it as the south but when you say y'all and there's someone who has an accent like this that's kind of southern <laughs> to me but yeah okay i digress yeah. let's get in let's get down to it so uh you you mentioned this word a lot when i'm hanging out with you and, and doing the work with you. you you'll often guide me in these sort of hypnotic meditations while i'm working with the think interface technology okay. and and this is something you just drop in in almost every sentence and that's this 5d this fifth dimensional existence or reality how would you define that what does that mean to you so that's a very good question you know and i think it's personal to everybody however what it really means the way that i transmit it to to you know friends and people that i work with is usually getting out of this rigid way of seeing us as finalized being at the level of the skin you know you can just be finalized and contained in this um, this cocoon of the skin or whatever we have. But we don't stop here. Our photovoltaic body is expansive, you know? And so um, to, for me, of course, I work with electrophysiology and, and, um, and various frequencies. Frequencies are my specialists. So it, it, frequency level, you're, you're glowing, you're, you're expanding your, you know, leptoquarks or your moons and your photons are, we're one big blob of cloud of information, you know, glowing at that miles radius. And so when I say 5D, it's just like a switch from this finite movement or finite feeling of, you know, just sensorial feeling into this energy from the heart where you expand and you bliss at the levels that are vibrational. And that vibration is not only um, electrophysiological or vibration of the, you know, sinusoidal vibration of the waves. It 
could be also magnetic, it could be also um, photovoltaic, and it's just expansive. It's like big blob, big cloud of, of you know, beautiful golden light. And without just being too, you know, woo-woo about it, it's actually what happens at um, quantum physics level. And we know that. So you just drop into that just perspective. It's a different perspective. You see yourself as a cloud of information or as as vibrational field. And we're used to talking about cloud, you know, iCloud and stuff hmm. like that. But we are clouds of information. And I think, I suspect that people from Apple or whoever actually started creating the iCloud has actually um, understood that long ago, that all, all energy is actually energy at the level of cloud, at the level of field. So we operate in the field mostly rather than operating in the three-dimensional. We're just not, we're becoming aware of that. But that's the magic in it. And so if you bank onto being aware at the 5D rather than 3D, at the magnetic, electromagnetic, or cloud level, for us as cloud of photovoltaic energy and magnetic energy, we then have much more power and much more potency and the possibilities are endless. I think this is why I like hanging out with you because you're someone who is highly trained and scientifically validated. You got the stamp of approval and then some from the scientific community, which we'll get into, but you're also deeply spiritual. And to me, I don't, I, I mean, I guess it goes both ways, but true science is to me the same as spirituality. Absolutely. And spirituality is very scientific. Totally. Now, within those realms, you have a lot of pseudoscience and you have a lot of pseudo-spirituality, yeah. right? There's a lot of falsehood in, right. in the human experience in general because of our, I guess, our naivete as a species. We just, you know, will wander off and follow any shiny thing, myself included at many times in my life. But I love how you're bridging the gap of these two, or, or rather proving that there is no gap, right? There is no gap. It's all one. <laughs> yeah, but I think that, you know, I think... Robert Edward Grant is somebody I, I listen to a lot or I read his books and his writing. Um, he's a good philosopher and a mathematician and a really a kind of Renaissance man. And um, I think he's talking about that as well. And Da Vinci was talking about it. Robert Edward Grant just uh, solved some of the unsolvable problems. Um, I think the 17th of August, he came out with some really discoveries that are incredible using the Da Vinci Code. And uh, so it would be very interesting to, to see that brilliant man. And so what, you know, what happens with this, when you see people like that, he speaks very fluidly between, you know, doesn't have a gap. It's just like what you notice, there is no gap. You just travel, you are here. And we're in 3D and we're in 5D or in 12D, whatever, whatever we can get to. Right now, we are, we're fluidly. So this fluidity that is developing is stemming from our consciousness. The more we, we are conscious and in our 3D world, we were taught at school that we need to gain knowledge. That's just my humble opinion. And then we were gaining knowledge, but with that knowledge gaining, we can actually expanded our consciousness as well in parallel. She said that part was omitted from the classroom. And that part, personally, I learned through Tom or through, you know, other teachers that I've studied Vedic meditation with and other things, you know, Sufism and some other beautiful, you know, practices. And 
we all do, and we combine it, and you know, you play music. When you play music, you go into trance, and uh, it's something very tangible but very spiritual at the same time. And the strings on the guitar, they're they're sinusoidal waves when they move. So the kinetic energy produces the sound energy. But we're not thinking about it. We feel with the guitar. Wow, that's cool. I never thought about that. Like the mathematics of music. Yeah. Right? I think like I just always played music from feel because I didn't have the type of mind that could learn to read music or play highly technical music. And I I don't think I ever had the discipline to become an aficionado on an instrument that was very technical. And I just like- you play guitar and you play other Yeah, I play bass. I play bass and guitar. Um, Yeah. But it's, I just learned the very bare minimum I could learn about music theory in order to just stay in the right key. Yeah. (laughs) Just kind of understand. (laughs) I remember the the guy that taught me my uh, bass at first, you know, he was teaching me some of these just basic pentatonic blues scales that most rock music's based on. And he said, you know, this is called minor think John Lee Hooker. And I was like, okay, kind of sad, moody. And then you learn a couple of those scales. And they said, yeah. this is the major scale. Think Chuck Berry. You know, He's that fantastic. kind of stuff. I was like, that's pretty much got me through for 15 years. I mean, here I am being a podcaster and not yeah. a paid musician. So maybe there was more to learn, but um, <laughs> I had fun, you know, just, oh, yeah, just that's based small, on the feel of it. But I like how you're saying the, if you think of really any, I, I mean, it's true of, I guess, a wind instrument or any stringed instrument, right? Yeah. It's, it really is just vibration and we perceive that vibration totally. through space and time as a tone and that tone has totally. some effect on our emotional and yeah. kind of energy body. So we speak through vibration. Our chords are vibrating so that it can hit your tympanus and uh, your, your tympanic you know, membrane and therefore you can hear. Um, if that was not functional, we would not be able to speak and hear each other and that's all physics you know, from that. But I think it comes from the heart vibration as well. And I think that most of our language actually comes through first telepathic feeling and is not biomechanical through, you know, voice vibration, chords, vocal chords, vibration, and tympanous membrane vibration. But I think it really comes first from the heart and from the, you know, electromagnetic field and photovoltaic field. We're just starting to understand that. You probably know by now how critical magnesium is for health, not only for better sleep and stress, but for your brain, heart, and so many other organs and systems in your body. The problem is that most magnesium supplements fail because they are synthetic and are not full spectrum. Magnesium Breakthrough is the only organic full spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. And I've got some good news for you. If you like magnesium and you love free stuff, you're in luck because Bioptimizer's Black Friday deal starts now. And not only are they giving you a huge discount all month long, they're also giving away over $200 worth of free gifts. Yep, that's what's up. During the entire month of November, you'll save up to 25% on Bioptimizer's best-in-class products, including Magnesium Breakthrough. This deal is awesome. So if you want to save that 25% and get some amazing free gifts, make sure you place your order by midnight, Tuesday, November 30th. You can only get this exclusive deal through my link, special for you lifestylist listeners. So you won't find this on Amazon or even the Bioptimizer's website. To get the hookup, here's what you do. Go to magnesiumbreakthrough.com lifestyle. 
and use the code lifestyle to get your discount and free gifts today. Again, your link is magnesiumbreakthrough.com slash lifestyle. And the code is also lifestyle. Do it now while supplies last and don't miss that November 30th deadline. What is this photovoltaic photovoltaic field? Okay. Like light and voltage, Volta, Alessandro Ah, Volta, who named the the voltage, you know, electricity. So photovoltaic is a combination of photons and electricity. Got it. It's a magical, you know, normal magical. This is uh, another word that you use a lot. And I've been meaning to ask you, what does that mean? So now now everyone can learn. Now it's simple. So all the crazy things are the most. I, I rarely do this because I'm not so concerned with someone's credentials or how they gain their body of knowledge. Yeah. I'm more about what the knowledge is. Okay. But um, but I am in awe of the the level of education that oh, that you, you either subjected yourself to or enjoyed. I guess depending on your experience of it. <laughs> Seeing someone that quit, I quit it. high school the day I turned 18. When I was legally not required to go, I was like, and goodbye. Um, you know, and here yes. I am. But uh, you know, what in what field of study did you did you get your PhD? Where did you go to school? For how long? What are some of the things that you've studied, and what are your kind of scientific and academic uh, credentials? Yeah, so I hail from Europe. From um, so I lived in in Rome most of my life, or most of my beginning of my life, and Trieste, and uh, also my family is uh, now is Croatia. So I went to schools there and in England as well, in Cambridge. Um, so my elementary education was just a classical linguistic gymnasium, you know, very good school, very, very good school. But um, I studied languages and I was always interested in ethnomusicology, so sound and music and linguistics. And I studied even Sanskrit and Pali and different languages when I was rather young. But when I was a very young kid, I knew that it was not, you know, how you, you just, something chooses you. You don't choose that. So I did not choose my path. My path, this vocation chose me. You know, I did not have a choice in a way. It's just like it came and I had to do it. And so I knew that when I was very young that I was going to do something in medicine. And when I was about 13, 14, I became obsessed with brains. And I just read, read like a sponge, anything that had to do with brains and frequency of music, frequency of sound and languages, very old languages cultured, Slavonic, Glagolic, crazy stuff like that. I was never into, as in, you know, whatever, empath or somebody who's sensitive, could never be at large crowds. So I was never really a party goer. I'm very social, but I don't like being in the, you know, large concerts, large crowds. Um, But I always was interested in in trance music and, you know, electrophysiology of the brain, but also of the body and more of an experience at the whole holistic level. And so I studied, um, I studied at the musicology as my undergrad in actually in Fiume for a little while. And then for three years, just uh, very early on, very fast, <laughs> kind of compressed everything very quickly. I went to Rome and um, got a degree um, in, um, essentially I created my trajectory. I asked the professors to give me a possibility of creating, it's a PhD level, but uh, I created my own trajectory when there was no neuroscience courses yet. 
created. So I just put it together and it was basic three years of medicine, like physics, mathematics, you know, whatever you need to do at a basic first three years of medicine. And then I piled everything that had to do with brain mapping, electrophysiology, vocal potentials, brain mapping, and dopamine. That was the time that nobody was doing that yet. So very few people were doing that. And um, so my professors were kind enough to say yes. And I was enabled to study a lot of electrophysiology, EEG, brain mapping, evoked potentials were my specialty. These are potentials that you stimulate the eyes or the auditory system, and then you evoke a potential in the synaptic you know, part of the synapses. And you, you get these spikes and you study these brain waves. So that's very kind of um, specific. And then I came here, my postdoc uh, did at Mount Sinai in New York City, did um, two years at Mount Sinai studying Parkinson, dopamine. Dopamine was my big deal always, <laughs> and brain mapping at, at every level. And then after that, and I was doing it also in Italy, intrasurgically as well with electrodes in the brain. But then after that, here, I just went also for the second round studying um neuropsychology and anything that had to do with non-invasive ways as well. And so this non-invasive part was always appealing to me. And when I opened my private practice, then um, that was in New York City on the Upper West Side and Upper East Side, um, I was seeing a lot of children with ADHD. So from before, I was dragging this idea that I wanted to create a better electrode because brain maps and brain caps were done in a very primitive way with actually a swimming cap with some little electrodes in there in gel. And um, it's still being used. I'm, I'm in shock. I've had a lot of those caps on. And I got to say, your headset is so much easier. Right. It took you like two seconds to get conductivity. Correct. I mean, It took it was us like... three years to create it. And that mm. little electrode is proprietary of ours that we're not even showing in public yet. It has my own alloy in it and it's dipped in gold, in pure gold. And it's a smart electrode, so it has chips on it. So it took us years, three years, a team of many. I mean, I worked with Honeybee Robotics and uh, their, their specialists, you know, robotic specialists who have apparatus on Mars and Jupiter. I mean, they're really smart people. So as always, whenever you start doing something, you're, you're just one link. I spearheaded all of this and invented, but a lot of, a lot of people make, you know, are part of the team. <laughs> so, uh, so these electrodes, um, are, I think are one of the few people in the world who don't have to use the gel or anything. You just plop it on your head. And that's one thing that I wanted in Rome when I was seeing all these Parkinson patients. You know, they were trembling and moving. And by the time you're done with gel in one part of the head, <laughs> the other part is dried oh, out. Oh my God, I never thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's a nightmare. <laughs> right, because with a normal QEG, I mean, you have to be quite still. Even if you're, you know, I've done a lot of neurofeedback and things and if you're chewing gum or moving yeah. around, it you know you, you get yeah it gets off. You get bad information. This is really good, and you're seeing you, you did not see the motion, but we can actually move around and and uh, jump. You know, once you have it situated properly, it's just really great. It took us quite a while to get to that level, but so that's one thing that I always wanted to do. I swore to, to myself that one day I would invent a better electorate and a better system because it was really really horrible to do all of that. You know. But 10 times a day, it was just really hard and demanding. And uh, this other thing is that these children who had heart issues, they cannot take stimulants. And so the parents, three sets of parents, asked me if I could invent something to heal 
the you know to make them focus better and to make them work better at school and be more present and not you know running in loops you know ADHD can be really demanding i mean you can peel the child off the walls <laughs> basically very need for hyperactivity is there and that's uh, interesting so if a child has heart issues they can't take something like ritalin no or, ritalin no not ritalin. there oh, were so many you know problems with that oh wow interesting so i created the game first and then other games and then that's how it came along cool. and then we we tested we, we did a lot of work i mean it's been now almost 14 years we got patents on it i got patents on it. i have three patents and i have uh, i met all the time timeline you know milestones that we need to meet with my company created cool. a company created everything in it that works and we tested we have long double blind uh, randomized um, you know sham proof study and we ho hospital in barcelona Columbia University and Wei Langone. Um, we worked with some with MSK, uh, Mount Sinai. One of the collaborators is Tel Aviv University now, University of Maryland, and Paris and Sorbonne. So these are the groups that we work with, and Honeybee Robotics and some other private about other eight groups of engineers that we work with. It's, it's a big team. Well, I want to get into some of the studies specifically a little later on. Sure. Because I think some of the clinical work that you've done is super cool and impressive. Oh, and that, you. I mean, I'm someone that just experiences so many things to me. A lot of it's anecdotal, yeah. but I like when, even if I'm having a placebo experience with something, mm -hmm. I, that's valid to me. I'll take a placebo sure. over nothing working. Right. But I find it really interesting when there's data to back things up, oh, yeah. you know, then it sort of, it, it helps me kind of buy into something also because I'm like, wow, I saw the white papers. I saw this study or these photographs yeah. of some blood cells or anything, even like the, you know, we were talking about the spinach test, you know, with, with FLFE and you're like, well, that isn't very scientific for me. That's scientific enough. You know, it's yeah. like, I'm yeah. made of water. You're putting water on the spinach. This one grows faster mm -hmm. than this one. I'm doing that thing, you know, right. but your studies are obviously much more elaborate yeah, um, than that. So we'll, get, so we'll get into that. But, um, Teach us a little bit about um, neurochemistry. You know, I'm so curious about dopamine and serotonin and tryptophan. And, and ultimately what I'm really interested in is the endogenous DMT or dimethyltryptamine. Is that what it is? Dimethyltryptamine? Yeah. Um, from Joe Dispenza's work, I mean, his theory is that you have these metabolites of serotonin and tryptophan and these things. And if you do certain things, you can, you know, kind of uh, right. exponentiate those higher states mm -hmm. of consciousness. So give us a bit of, you know, breakdown on, on the neurochemistry, if yeah. you would. So, um, well, dopamine, you know, according to Harvard School of Thought, is a feel-good hormone, no? And so people often get, well, first, dopamine is, is a neurotransmitter. We have several neurotransmitters, and they, they transmit. So here is my hands. <laughs> I'm Italian. People watching at home can see the Italian hands. <laughs> Definitely. So the synaptic cleft is between the two synapses. And you have one neuron and so then read against, and then you have this little end of the synapse on one hand and the other one here. And so they have to, how do they talk to each other? They transmit, they send little balls of transmission of serotonin or dopamine or whatever the transmitter is. And then these receptors receive it 
and then they transmit the impulse all the way out. And the transmitter, you know, the impulse goes around the, along the axon. That's so funny. I never thought about neurotransmitters actually transmitting Transmit. information. That's yeah. that's funny. Yeah. yeah, it's all in the language, isn't it? Yeah, language it is. is magical. Yeah, words can be powerful. So, um, dopamine actually enables you to um, respond to reward. So, if you so like you know that hit on when you get a heart on your Instagram or something, you get a dopamine pump, and and. Fortunately and unfortunately, it can be used in both sides. You know, it can be used in a negative way or in positive way. If you reward certain things that are really good, for example, in our case, you're rewarding specific opening of the pathways and specific um, frequency in the brain that you elicit, then you reward that many times, then you, you help create certain specific pathways that is linked to dopaminergic transmission. And believe it or not, um, a lot of dopamine many people don't know this, is that a lot of many, many receptors for dopamine are situated in the retina area in the eye. And um, so when you stimulate the light, you know, or light or, or very various frequencies, whether it's spatial frequencies or visual frequencies, um, they come into your eye, into your retina or fovea, and so through foveal vision or parafoveal vision, you end up stimulating the eye and stimulating the retina, and they're, they're very... In that, that level, we get the impulse. But impulse gets better or worse if you have all the dopaminergic receptors in place that are working really well. And then they coordinate um, their, uh, honestly, I think it's through, this is our way of stimulating through dopaminergic, you know, through visual field. So you can stimulate dopamine in many different ways through, you know, loving your dog, you, you hug your dog, oxytocin, dopamine flows. But again, that part of dopamine transmission, that part of reward is very instantaneous, no? So it's kind of a momentary strong joy, strong jolt of joy. Whereas serotonin is usually associated with long-term uh, um, happiness, you know, the consistency in that uh, well-being of, you know, not having a depression, for example. You know, if you have equalized dopamine and and uh, serotonin, you will not have a depression. You will have a equal mood, equalized mood, um, and your mood will be elevated. And your uh, serotonin is responsible for um, longitudinal well-being, mental well-being. So it's it's more related to happiness and consistency over time rather than an immediate jolt of, you know, joy got and, got and almost ecstasy. I wonder yeah. if evolutionarily we have that visual stimulation of dopamine because of our need to look for food yep. and procreation. Do you think that has something to do with I it? Really, I question that. That's a beautiful question. You know why? Because also when you communicate with somebody and you know, people say the eyes are the seat of the soul. I always believe that. And I think it's because it's connected to your, this photovoltaic feeling, you know, photovoltaic being and to our heart energy too. It's, it's like it flows. When you're in the flow, you're literally in the flow of dopamine and it's, it's elevating. And if you're, if you have sunshine, if you have good light, um, you rarely are sad, but go to the places like Sweden or Norway 
where there is no light. Right. You have to create your artificial light to not to get the seasonal depressive disorder. Right, right. So I even have a light at home that's, I mean, mostly I have a bunch of red lights because I'm trying to get right. rid of the blue light at night, but I do have, it's called a Verilux. Yeah. And uh, it's for seasonal, it you do? It's great. It's amazing. I use it when I travel to kind of um, change my circadian rhythm. Yeah. So if I'm in some weird time zone, I'll like wake up in the morning and look right at that thing and pretend like it's the sun. Bit, it really yeah. works. It really it does works. Work. That's yeah. that's why it works. It's like a full spectrum blue light, basically. Correct. Yeah. Because you're you're stimulating your dopaminergic receptors oh, in your retina. I don't even know what I'm doing. I no, just but you go by the heart. Well, just fundamentally it makes sense, right? Because yeah. I'm I'm tricking my brain into a different time zone. Yeah. We've not evolved to change time zones that right. quickly, obviously. So yeah, kind of use that. But that's that's really interesting. So but it's beautiful, isn't it? Because you can actually you get visual reward and visual associations for like food or our loved ones or our children or our dogs or our partners. You you connect with people through eyes and through and I think also through heart energy. I think our heart energy, like literally heart field has been underestimated. And, you know, I love that Greg Braden is studying it very nicely. And, you know, I fully believe in his science. And the Heart Math Institute, yeah. all the work they're doing. And, yeah. But there are others. I mean, we, you know, we're studying it very scientifically and at the levels of, um, you know, true kind of proven randomized studies, of double blind studies and all that. And it's, it shows that this is, so one of my favorite things about this is, maybe it's freaky, but it's interesting. So, you know, when children, um, some kids need heart transplant, no? So there was this one girl, and this is a true story. One girl had a heart transplant and um, suddenly she started developing nightmares. She's like a six-year-old girl. And and nobody could understand why, because she was very calm usually. But she had a heart transplant and she got a transplanted heart from somebody else, another six-year-old from another part of the country. I don't think they usually tell you about it. And she developed these nightmares and then she worked with some psychiatrists and specialists and at the end with forensic specialists because the parents really were curious about it and wanted to stop these nightmares. And so the specialist designed, I mean, he was, she was showing what, what her nightmares were. They were recurring nightmares of being in the forest and being actually taken, her life was taken away. And um, she was frightened. And she described this man to a T, like literally. So this forensic draw, um, designer, whoever it is, forensic artist, was able to create this from the memory of this girl, from these nightmares of this girl. He was able to create the image of this event. Somebody got a good idea, one of the sheriffs got a good idea to actually try to figure out if there was some correlation with something that really happened. Lo and behold, it did. They found which area of America, it was somewhere in the Midwest, um, there was a murder and the murder was happening and that was the murder of that girl who donated, the donor? The, whose heart was given. Whoa. And they tracked the perpetrator and they caught him. What? Now, isn't that, this is like, gives me shivers, but it's crazy. Shit. But this is where we know that the heart has memory. Wow. In the heart, we have electrophysiological wow. field. And this is a, this is a medical, you know, forensic medical uh, fact. You know, it's a beautiful story, but it yeah. shows you that heart has a memory. It it has a cluster of neurons that are it's called neurites, and it's a really like a brain of the heart in the heart. And then in the brain, we have the center 
uh, that governs also this correlated with the heart. So these are not just sci-fi stories, they're electrophysiological data. Wow. Not my studies, but yeah. I find it fascinating. I've been into energetic healing technologies for many years, especially those that are supportive for EMF exposure. And there are a lot of so-called quantum products on the market, and I've tried just about any one I've ever heard of, but few of them have had any noticeable effect. However, there is one product line that's passed my test and become part of my arsenal, and it's called Leela Quantum Tech. Leela Quantum has developed a groundbreaking technology to increase your energy level, become more stress-resistant, and also helps to support your whole family, pets, and garden with pure quantum energy. The Leela Quantum products have been certified and studied by various third-party institutes and doctors, and these studies have found significant improvements in people's blood, cellular voltage, allergy reduction, and heart rate variability. But my favorite benefit of all is that the Leela Quantum products help neutralize harmful frequencies, including any EMF like 4G, 5G, microwaves, and Wi-Fi. In fact, I have the Leela Quantum block in my kitchen where I charge my food, drinks, and supplements, as well as the Infinity block in my living room and here in the studio for a huge energetic upgrade. Leela Quantum Tech is a truly conscious business that wants to do good in the world and even plants a tree for every order. So if you want to hook up your energetic environment and have a tree planted on your behalf, you can go to leelaq.com and use the code LUKE10 to save 10% off your first order. That's L-E-E-L-A-Q.com and the discount code is LUKE10 for new customers. That's so fascinating. You know, I've been thinking about PTSD lately because yeah. I know we're going to talk about that more. And I, I want to get back into a little the chemistry side of it too, because I know there's so much, so many nuggets in there to unpack. Yeah. But um, you know, I've been thinking about this with people that have childhood trauma or early life trauma and how that manifests as PTSD. When you look at what's going on in the world now, I mean, you just have so many traumatized people running around, yeah, myself, myself included. Oh, yeah, and almost everyone I know is we all did. recovering from that. And when I've been contextualizing that in terms of relationships, like romantic partnerships, because it's something I had such difficulty with and through a lot of the healing that I've done, I've been able to really overcome most of that and have yeah. a great relationship. As you know, you've been experiencing it. And I was thinking about how how it relates to the heart and that when we're harmed, whether physically or emotionally or psychologically, it breaks our heart. Mm -hmm. Literally. Yeah. And that then we enter into adolescence and adulthood and we attempt to have relationships with a heart that's still broken. And yeah. I think we often think of the broken heart as like a breakup, right? The demise of a romantic relationship mm -hmm about which we were hopeful and enjoying it and ended for whatever reason. But I think it's that heartbreak piece that is what's driving so many of us and mm -hmm. trying to enter into any kind of an intimate relationship with your heart still broken with that mm -hmm. unhealed trauma is like trying to get up and ski again with a broken leg. You know, it's just, you yeah. got to heal the leg. You got to put a cast on it, you know? And so there are many casts for the heart, but it's it brings me to that realization, something I've been exploring a bit lately of, of how so much, you know, we think of our heart as this thing that just pushes the blood around, right? But as an energetic field of our heart and that it can be harmed, and, and I guess I'm using the word broken for lack of a better term, but it can be harmed in ways 
that inhibit our ability to function in a fulfilling and healthy way. Yeah. But it's because it's hidden and it's not a broken leg or a broken arm where it's visible or it's acutely painful. It's just kind of this chronic aching that many of us carry in our lives. And we look outside of ourselves to try to find the remedy right. in all the things, right, that we think are going to remove that sense of dis-ease. So anyway, there's not really a question in that, but it's just something that I, I like to speak to because it's it's something that's helped me so much just identifying this is where oh, yeah. I, this is where we live. You know, we live in our heart. I mean, we, we think live we live heart. in our mind, but yeah. we're really generating our energetic field from the heart. And if there's a disturbance there, <laughs> we're, we're going to also attract <laughs> other people, right? We're going to find a vibrational alignment Absolutely. with other broken hearts and get into that trauma yeah. bonding and all that. It's just, it's fascinating stuff. So to hear it scientifically validated is is meaningful oh man so many things that you raised now that i'm like it's feel, all going feel free to spin off you know miles a minute. we're not on a linear journey here no but this is actually all connected you know because um this this what you're saying this vibrational of the heart um and the broken heart is actually leading me to think about you know all the talks and all the knowledge i learned through science of photovoltaic or voltaic field energetic so essentially think of yourself or a human being as a battery so when you think of aura or a field or a field around you it's basically a battery field so there there are several doctors who are studying now correlation between what happens when you have a, a surgery in your mouth or teeth there, you know, that you have cavities and you have put been filled with with mercury or something like that. Not only does it go into your system, but it disrupts your actually battery, the center part of the battery, which is right here in the heart and in the heart. And that's why heart and, and mouth, heart and teeth are connected. So you can't have like a root canal. It's better to avoid the root canal because there are studies showing that there is a correlation between then disruption of the rhythm of the heart. And because if you look at it from electrophysiological point of view, this battery, battery field gets disrupted. So literally you have a clunky battery field. So you don't, you don't emit anymore this synchronized, uniform, beautifully um, in sync, literally in sinusoidal sync. Uh, you don't feel that anymore because there has been a disruption. And what happens at the level of amygdala, for example, when you have a trauma, um, and there is so many things that I want to say about it. I'll, I'll try to be linear about it if I can. Um, when you have a trauma, let's say uh, you, you talked about broken leg, but also equally or even more powerfully is like a broken, you know, we say broken heart or broken um, trust. You know, when somebody hurts you or physically hurts you or emotionally hurts you, there is an injury inside your cells, memories for cells for the memory. So hippocampal area, or you know, you end up with a fight or flight reflex immediately. Let's say you, it's the same type of thing that you feel if you feel a breakup trauma from a lover's breakup. And we have studies on that, not mine, but other people's studies. Equally can be equally painful and equally disruptive in the circuits of the brain as if you had a trauma to a leg. 
like oh, equally wow. and similar pathways actually. So it's 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 kind of like an emotional TBI. An emotional injury. It's, right. it's literally right. an injury. What happens when you have this trauma? You end up um, feeling a loss, like a complete loss. Something shrivels and dies off. And literally, some of the cells actually go into apoptosis. So you have the cell death. So you have circuits that actually start installing themselves that are wrong circuits. So you have this obsessive thinking about memories of your, you know, what happened before. Let's say somebody really hurt you, really, really hit you hard. And so in that moment, your amygdala flared up. You, you started firing from amygdaloid cells. And those amygdaloid cells are the startle cells. They, they provoke the startle reflex, which is great, important, wonderful self-defense mechanism if you're touching fire for a moment because you're not going to get burned. But if you start having that all the time, it goes into this loop that then doesn't stop. It develops almost like similar to OCD loop, you know, or similar to a broken CD. I'm you have a group. very familiar with the phenomenon right. you too. describe. <laughs> I mean, I don't think who I mean, is not, not so much anymore. You know, it's yeah. rare, but that. Oh, me too. Because what happens is when oh, you're hurt God. repeatedly, so you try to repair the hurt and you go into maybe, oh, maybe I'll repair it. The brain thinks maybe I'll repair it through rehashing it and fixing it somehow. What did I do wrong? What did I, where did I go wrong? And those circuits install themselves. And you can actually, so Dr. Schwartz at Columbia Presbyterian, he, he wrote about in a book by Norman Deutsch, The Brain That uh, Heals Itself. Um, you can actually look at, the, he works with OCD patients where he says, turn the page. You interrupt that circuit in a certain specific area in actually prefrontal area of the brain, which is also linked to dopaminergic pathways. But what happens when you have this trauma, something installs, this firing starts from amygdala, and then the memory starts connecting, you know, the loop starts connecting all the way down to hippocampal area, passes through thalamus as well, so it's our emotional center. And it goes and installs itself into disrupting dopaminergic circles. So the dopamine circles start being not properly activated. Serotonin circles started, start being deactivated again. So you have the serotonin drop. So you have the sadness and the sadness starts developing, you know, maybe depression. You know, first we start with the scary moments of, you know, amygdaloid overflow. And then you end up with, you know, uh, it's, it's basically you, you go into hyperdrive for a moment and that stays with you for about three days, five days, 10 days. When you go into this adrenaline hyperdrive, it's really depleting, literally depleting your dopamine and serotonin. And so dopamine, and it, you know, it creates the flows of dopamine that are inadequate. They can even create motric problems. They can create motric problems of, of like language. So your bucolabial, your, your expression starts, you know, people start stuttering. It's all connected. And with uh, OCD cycle, it's serotonin drop creates then possibilities for OCD cycle. So it's all connected. And, but people tend not to study all together. You know, they just you go to a psychiatrist and they'll give you Xanax for calming you down for one part. Instead of understanding it holistically as a big symphony of the brain, a big symphony of your experience, which then if you go into quantum field, you can understand deeper at deeper levels and 
you can then repair the photovoltaic area, you know, the voltage, and you can, you have to start from somewhere. So personally, I think we start from electrophysiology and stimulation of the, um, we, we use the frequencies of your own brain non-invasively and we stimulate the retina so you can actually reinstall the, the equalization. You, you stimulate the dopamine, so the dopamine pumps equally, it stimulates nervous vagus, everything gets equalized and then serotonin comes in and norepinephrine and noradrenaline actually calm down. So everything kind of goes into perfect symphony of calm and bliss. But you can approach it from different ways as well. You can approach it through, as you go, you know, with breath work and you can go into excess, you can go into Kundalini breath work, which is what Joe Dispenza does, you know, teaches. It's all old, you know, 7,000 years old work from Himalayas. I remembered what Joe Dispenza told me about that because just to digress for a second, because yeah. we were talking about this yesterday. I said, Joe, I love your work and I benefit a lot from yeah. the meditations and things. And I said, and, you know, when I started doing it, I realized this is what I've been doing in Kundalini yoga classes exactly. and teacher training stuff for a number of years. And I was kind of waiting for his response. If he was like, no, I invented this. And he was just like, well, yeah, duh. And he said something to the effect. He's like, Luke, your average person is not going to go do Kundalini yoga or some of these more esoteric practices. Yeah. So what I'm doing is just taking these ancient practices and giving them to the masses in a way that is- That they can receive yeah, that's, it. That's generalized right. enough so that it's not threatening to their belief systems Brilliant. or their Marketing culture. packaging, um, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that was his answer because I couldn't remember the answer the other day and I was like, yeah. all right, that's fair. So, you know. It's fair. It's fair. I mean, you know. whatever makes people feel better. However, yeah. you can deliver it. Yeah. Is this my point was just that you know to to say that we can approach the healing from many different aspects, but this trauma has been documented to be you know you asked me to to break it down a little bit. Hopefully, I didn't jumble it too much. No, keep going. It's and, it's brilliant. Uh, you know this amygdaloid reflex or fight or flight is good if it's just if your house is on fire and you have to get out of there very quickly. But it's not good if it continues forever. <laughs> It's, because it's it depletes everything. It's excruciating. Yeah. We all have been in trauma. And what's interesting to me is that it's, I think it's useful for people to know that it really, it's documented medically that it's in circuits of the brain, it, it manifests almost the same as a broken leg. So it's literally a broken heart. It's a broken circuitry of the heart circuitry of the electrophysiological voltage, which then can propel the heart in, you know, all these disbalances in the brain can propel the heart into a heartache, what they call heartache. But it's essentially, it impacts on rhythmicity or, you know, heart rate. And heart rate has to be kind of regulated in a way that it's not always the same. You know, we have kind of intermittent heart rates and we know all of that, you know, this whole separate field. I'm not a cardiologist, but I... I know that there is a synchronization between yeah. the brain and the heart. And most people listening will be familiar with HRV, heart rate variability, right? right? So when your, right. Nerve, your, your nervous system is exactly. balanced, sympathetic and parasympathetic, you're going to have a higher HRV score. Exactly. And it does impact our, our oxygen transmission then. You know, it impacts our mitochondrial uh, growth. It impacts at many, you know, genetic level or epigenetic level. So we see that all of this is connected. So what am I trying to drive at or where my heart drives in is that it's it's all connected you know and it's then 
better, I think, more efficiently repaired and more efficiently understood if you understand quantum field. Mm. Because at quantum levels, you can actually heal a lot faster and in exponential ways and effortlessly. I've been using a plant medicine called Kratom for many years. It's an all-natural herb related to the coffee plant that's been used in Thailand for centuries. Kratom is a trip because it energizes your mind and relaxes your body at the same time. There are very few alkaloids on the planet that provide that unique combo of benefits. So I'll use Kratom when I want to chill out and be social or ease body pain. The cool thing, however, about Kratom is that while it's relaxing, some strains can actually give you energy for a workout or, in my case, even podcasting. It just helps you feel good without feeling impaired. The tricky thing is, though, there are a lot of super shady liquor store and smoke shop Kratom products available, but I wouldn't trust most of them enough to put them into my body. There can be issues with mold and other toxins that make the Kratom market challenging to navigate. Not to mention, some of them are extracts which could provide some pretty serious side effects that aren't worth the risk. The brand of Kratom I use personally is called Super Speciosa, and it has only one ingredient, pure Kratom leaf. So Super Speciosa is a very legit Kratom brand and the one I've come to trust most for regular use. And it's worth noting that for beginners, I recommend their signature Super Speciosa strain. It's the most popular, best-selling strain they sell and a good one to start with. So if you want to try Kratom and get 20% off your entire order, go to GetSuperLeaf.com slash Luke and use the code Luke. That's GetSuperLeaf.com slash Luke. Well, that's definitely been the case, you know, for, for, for those listening, you already know this, but when, when Lana showed up in town, I've been having a good life, you know what I mean? <laughs> Being here the past few months, uh, there's a lot going on, but the week before you showed up, things had really hit a fever pitch with my mm. stress level. I mean, just mm. too much to handle, you know, because of some situations going on in life that needed to be adjusted, you know, and I'm in the process of adjusting them. Uh, yeah. But when you showed up, I was in that limbic system lock for like two days before you get I mean, here. overflow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no amount of meditation, none of my devices, yeah. praying my ass off, doing the breath work, breath work. I mean, like, you know, the other day I passed out straight, hit my face on the floor doing breath work. That's how hard I was trying Even to like get out of it. Work. Yeah. I was trying to get out of this feeling. I'm just like, I need, I got to, I can't function. And it, and I used to live like that all the time. That's the good news. I mean, my whole life as a drug addict was that. And even for many years after I uh, was able to get sober because I was just so injured, you know. But um, when I came over and did, I've done three Think Interface sessions now. So far, yeah. And within the first day, I was, it was totally fixed. Isn't it great? Yeah. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. And not not just a temporary thing where like I felt good for an hour afterward. I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm back to myself. I can breathe again. It was just like, oh, I, there was so much more distance between me and these perceived challenges, right? That I've built up in my head. So I think there's there's a lot to, to talk about there. But what I want to know is when it comes to that fight or flight, right? When we've had our heart broken or where there's been some emotional or psychological damage to our brain and all this connectivity and this delicate, a symbiosis that exists between all of these systems. It's so interesting how in a human, we really lack the ability to reset it on our own. But when you look at the animal kingdom, 
I'm thinking of a deer, right? There's so many deer around here and you'll be driving around and you might startle a deer driving close to them or something, right? And they freak out and they run and they jump over the fence and they're in a fight or flight. They're, yeah. they're flighting, right? They're fleeing. And then they just stop, kind of look around and they go back to eating and they're just totally relaxed. Zimbless. Or you see a couple ducks and they have a little tussle and, you know, and then they just shake the water off and then it's just like nothing ever happened, right? And I, I just marvel at the ability for animals to have an appropriate stress response yeah. that then subsides when the threat is no longer present. But with us, you know, there's this mechanism of action that you described yeah. where there was a real threat. We were harmed in whatever way, car accident, getting beaten up, whatever. But that threat is literally gone. But then something comes into our direct experience that right. subconsciously even reminds us of that threat. And then the same response happens, yeah. even though it's illogical and makes no sense. We're actually totally safe. Everything's fine. All our friends tell us, dude, what's wrong? Why are you tripping? It's all good. It's going to work out. This is no big deal. And you can't make it stop. And it's right. torture. And I think for a lot of drug addicts and alcoholics, because I've known so many and continue to have so many friends that have escaped that demise, um, Many of us live that way for a very long time and yeah. many people never ever recover from that. And I guess that in a blanket sense could be called PTSD. I mean, yeah, it's an actual absolutely. disorder. So I guess there's two questions kind of in there. One is, is it the complexity of the human mind that gives us the propensity and the vulnerability for that dilemma over mm -hmm. animals? And then I guess maybe explain your definition of PTSD and the different flavors of it. Mm. It's a very interesting question. You know, whether it's a complexity of human mind. Very Why can't I be like a deer and, you know, <laughs> like something jumps out in front of me and I freak out and I run and then I just go off and eat something and forget divine, about it. Incredibly divine conscious being. And I think our conscience plays a big role. That's just my, you know, is it my the, humble Is it the opinion. prefrontal cortex that, that has developed in us and not in other primates and animals? It has to do with, with our evolutionary um, capacity as thinking beings. Mm -hmm. I think it comes into the loops of thinking and memories. It ingrains in our hippocampal areas, in our memory memories, much stronger than it would in animal memories. And I think our emotional link, thalamic link with the memory, with the hippocampal links, the thalamus and hippocampus are involved together with our memories, you know, long-term memories and short-term memories, then flare up and this amygdala, you know, which is a gland as well in that area, it, it doesn't stop discerning. And then we install these new grooves, which animals tend not to, although elephants remember really well, and I wonder whether it has to do with, with certain aspects of their brain. But I wouldn't stop again just at a brain physiological level. I would think it's it has to do with us as um, you know, as as beings who are actually who have come to this planet, to this earth as as spiritual beings. And I think it has to do more with our evolution and our evolving to the next level where we can actually feel to that. And that degree that we have to recognize. So the reason that you snapped out of this loop with quantum tool is because you enabled yourself 
as a sentient, you know, fifth dimensional being to go into that state of mind where you can be in the now because what you were experiencing is for like 45 minutes, you were being in the now. There was no way that you could actually escape being in the now. You had to lift that ramp and you had to move certain things on the screen. And if you did not do that, you would not be working. So you engage your whole being in being in the now and with consciousness and this, this divine consciousness, you know, divinity crisis consciousness that we all hope for. We hope to attain to, to some level of enlightenment. And I don't know whether animals are enlightened or not by themselves already. I would suspect yes. Some of them seem to have a pretty, our, pretty well figured pretty out. Pretty high level of, uh, of the spirituality at every level. But I think that for us, um, and this is just my humble opinion, you know, I don't know really. But at that level, I would say most likely we are, um, we're almost designed to experience these experiences so deeply almost the level of torture or to the level of torture to then test ourselves how to find this god particle within us uh. you know how to go maybe animals have that all the time but we as humans it's almost like our veils have closed when we came in we, we plato talks about it you know and we ended up in in living in this maya and this illusion but once we pierce this veil which many people are saying now this veil has been lifted quite a wi- quite a while now you know almost 6 months now and uh, we're actually experiencing other realities and other capacities that we have and I, actually i believe that every human being every every brain doesn't stop at the brain we stop at this photovoltaic and other sphere of you know we're light beings just simply because we we are photon photons in movement we're, we're clouds of information. And once we step into that powerful field of divinity consciousness, uh, we then in, invite our, our knowledge, our, our experience of God within us, of our higher self, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, uh, you can use any, um, any verbiage about it. But it's always the same thing. It's this blissful capacity to stay in the center of the steroidal field of photo you know, photonic energy, that we know that everything is possible. And then in that place, there is no fear. There is no fear in 5D. There is no fear. And when you, when you get to that point where you actually are, you know, fearless, literally, like the Zen masters or like the karate masters, like the samurais, they experience, they got to the point where they have no fear. And when you get to the point, and I think we can all get to the point where there is no fear, all of that that was fed by the narrative over this three-dimensional world that we're in just goes away in no time, no space. And we're just in a bliss all the time because we realize that there is no fear. There is, you know, all of that can go away. So we can create, we're free to create and beautifully. So, so. In, so in a sense then, this capacity that we have to become injured, the sensitivity we have, yeah is perhaps part of the intelligent design of our ascension platform. That's my right? so, opinion. So we have this more broad spectrum capacity yeah. for the evolution of consciousness. Yeah. 
And within that, there are some pitfalls because you have the spectrum, right? You can go from the lowest level of apathy and grief and despair to the highest levels of celestial ecstasy, right? We we have all of that kind of at our fingertips. And so that gives us us the karmic kind of toolkit or opportunity then to have some grist for the mill to work with. Whereas a deer is just kind of like, wow, where's the water and grass? Yeah, I got to make a baby and go make some pebbles. Yeah. What do they call them? They're not called pebbles. <laughs> you know, like tur- <laughs> I'm thinking of deer turds, you know, droppings, droppings. That's what I'm thinking of. Deer <laughs> droppings. Yeah. I mean, it's a simplistic existence, right? And they're just kind of holding their place in the yeah. ecosystem. But who knows? You know, one can hypothesize that yeah. they don't have the same spectrum or capacity for conscious evolution that we do. So we're, we're maybe like they our, don't need it, you know, maybe they yeah, were not. Yeah. I think we came here to experience ourselves and experience certain experiences, be it great, wonderfully amazing, you know, winning, you know, whatever, or experiencing the bliss at the top of the mountain when you climb or anything like that, or suffering. That's also an experience. It's a very valuable experience. But when, when you hit the rock bottom, it's interesting how many, uh, especially people who are now very awake, are those those of us who have actually hit the rock bottom. It's like it always yeah. comes, almost like Phoenix comes from the ashes. We have to redo it. No? Totally. But yeah. we hit that rock bottom. I mean, we all hit that rock bottom. <laughs> and we don't I, know. I call my rock bottom and not to try to be special, but it's, it, was, <laughs> it was a subterranean rock bottom. <laughs> it's like below the bottom. Or as a, one of my teachers used to say, he said, man, I went lower than whale shit. <laughs> and that's like at the that. bottom of the ocean. Old, old drum. Well, yours, yours is even lower than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but you are special. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think within... Our capacity for suffering also is born out of that is our capacity for empathy and compassion, right? I mean, when I see people suffer, I mean, I'm just driven with their permission and invite, of course, to do anything I can to alleviate that because it's not some foreign experience to me. I see it and I go, oh God, I remember what that feels like. And so that's the healthy part of the brain that can take me back and not go into some spiritual bypass where I've totally yeah. negated the suffering that I've experienced, but I have enough access to it, hopefully to go, ah, yeah, let's stay humble, right? Remember where I came from. Remember how blessed and um, fortunate I am to have evaded yeah. harm in the ways that I have, and then hopefully be driven to assist other people in doing the same. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for contextualizing that because there are times, you know, when you're in the thick of it, where I go sometimes it's just God being a human sucks. Like it's so hard sometimes, you know, for all of us. And of course, many people in the world right now are, are having that experience even more so. But it's linked to the narrative, isn't it? I mean, what comes to mind is that, you know, we, we tell ourselves this is so hard because, you know, the world around us here told us it's so hard. But when you go to India I have never been yet, but when you look at India, you know, and some people, you would just say they're suffering so much. They're living on the street. And yet you, you know, my friends who went to Himalayas or to India, they said they're not suffering. They're, they're taking it I've as I've never it is met happier blessed. people anywhere in my life than in right. India, especially in the remote villages right. that I, you know, a Westerner would call like poverty stricken, right? right? And, and the, they're blissing. Yeah. They're living the dream. Yeah. They're super happy. Right. So, you, you know, that's my point. Yeah. That it's all a narrative. It's all what we tell ourselves or people tell us. 
And if you tell people from the very young age when that everything is a bliss, that everything is beautiful and it's amazing, then we possibly can attenuate the suffering as well. You know, is it? Tom calls it addicted to suffering. You know, mm. Tom Knowles, yeah, our teacher here. Great, great podcast, by the way, those listening, the Tom Knowles podcast, a great Vedic meditation teacher. And yes, he does kind very of beautiful podcast. Short solo casts that are really amazing, yes. incredible information and on consciousness. And there is one chapter on it, one is it dedicated to addicting, addicted to suffering. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's, it's like, again, it's a groove in our brain that creates through the narrative. And you then you tell your other friends, oh, you know, I suffered so much. And you can repeat that million times. Words carry power. Words reinstall our new pathways in the brain. You're grooving it, grooving it always again. And then, you know, or triggers. People are saying, that triggered me. I think it's overrated you, you, because it creates other suffering. It adds to suffering. If you drop the narrative of trigger, then you say, okay, I'm just going to heal that. That's it. I don't have, because triggers imply that then whatever comes at you from the outside, you have to respond negatively. And then you feed the negative groove. But if you stop allowing yourself to be triggered, you become the actor. You're really not a reactor. You, you become consciously, actively involved. So nobody can trigger you because you're above it all. In PTSD, then, how, how would you define it? Is it as simple as neural pathways being created by a traumatic event that remain unhealed and are and are still active mm-hmm. and then you know get reactivated or triggered using the word that you used because that original wound has not been healed? It, can it be defined in such simplistic terms or is there more you could add to that? Um, I think it's what we were talking about before that it, it's you know, amygdala starts hyperactively discerning the, you know, uh, various neurotransmitters that create then this fight or flight reflex in the brain. And I think also in photovoltaic, electrophysiological and, and um, magnetic field of the body. And we end up uh, experiencing that and locating these in memory, literally in our cell memories in hypocampal areas or in thalamic areas. And what happens, and you know, from thalamus, center of emotion, um, and goes into the, um, into the field of, of uh, area of hippocampal memory cells, and that groove installs itself. It's almost like a broken record groove, you know, again, mm-hmm. you know, a vinyl that has been grooved wrongly. And scratched. It's a scratch record. I remember those. Oh, uh, yeah. We, yeah we, get, we have them now. They get no? stuck. Led Zeppelin too. One riff over and over again. Oh, yeah. I love Led Zeppelin. That's definitely a good one of the, band. One of the first, you know, five bands I think I heard on vinyl oh, yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah and then you, you listen to that LP so much that it grooves the yeah. wrong way. Yeah, or you'd be stoned and you'd spill yeah. the bong on it or something. Someone would scratch it, you know. And, <laughs> and it's all yeah. scratches. And there you go. So, But, but it's, I, a, it's a great analogy for that, you know, that thought loop some yeah. of us are familiar with, right? Where we're like, God, I want to stop thinking about this problem. And come in and say, oh, that triggered me. So that, that creates yet another little groove. And you allow it. So what would happen if you don't allow it? If you just stop, you know, um, reacting to these so-called triggers. And I'm not minimizing trauma. The brain trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, or complex post-traumatic stress, stress disorder is horrifying. We all live through it. I mean, I did, you did. We, many, the whole world is living through it now. 
And um, that's partially what gives me joy to, to, you know, one of the biggest joys now is heal people through, you know, think that actually really takes away the trauma, takes away post-traumatic syndrome. Well, this is, this is what I want to get to is, I mean, I'm cautious anytime an inventor, scientist, anyone, supplement maker, biohacker, whatever is like, oh, I know how to fix that. And then it's gone. I'm like, yeah, okay, come on, let me see it. But when I've spoken to you, because we've talked a number of times about this, about PTSD specifically and the technology think interfaces that you've created, you just like, without any hesitation, say, oh yeah, we can get rid of PTSD and then it's just gone. Not like, oh, you feel better for a week, but you literally don't have it anymore. So tell us a bit about that. I mean, it's a bold claim. I don't disbelieve it especially ever having having three days of experience where I'm going, huh, I feel very different. And Allison, same thing. Um, so so um, w- first of w- all, w- disclaimer, I don't have a medical study on PTSD. Okay. I only have um, uh, what we call uh, pilot studies because we gather data from people that we trained. We don't uh, do anything with that data, but we have it in our computers so we can analyze them. But what we have, uh, what we have gathered is facts and then also collaboration with various other medical doctors or therapists that we spoke with um, for, from people who had like cranial trauma, TBI. And so you get concussion, but you have also complex PTSD that comes after that. And it's there and it doesn't go away. So we've seen children and adults, many, probably around 80, and uh, they have been in touch with their medical doctors and their hospitals where they get their CAT scans and everything done. And so they come to us and they train with us. And even after the first session or second session, that fog in the brain and all those complex PTSD, you know, elements that are symptoms are gone. In majority of people's sense of vision comes back, uh, sense of centeredness, sense of um zest for life and the capacity to read a chapter without headaches um all of that comes back and doesn't come does the the hurt doesn't come back so the symptoms of ptsd don't come back and we know that because we've seen people from three years ago and from three months ago and and all of them reported that i check on my clients you know and so my colleagues and we we know that and if in some occasions yes some people who have had very complex, difficult PTSD, they may need to have a refresher. But generally, a lot of people don't. They just feel And you're better. talking about five to 10, 45-minute sessions. Correct. Yeah. And no- so that's because it's quantum field, I think. And again, we, I, we have only one large study now that we have done with ADHD children who had anxiety as well as part of the comorbidity and who had some other issues, learning issues. And we have documented data and we, we just send it to nature for publication. So we were vetted um, externally and internally by about 50 professionals who actually polished our papers and wow. gave us inputs. Impressive. And now we just, it's, it was a study that was about six years in the making and then all the analysis of data took a long time. So we, we got the data back and even, you know, CAT scans and uh, MRIs and fMRIs, which we did, and uh, EEG signals, we, and then scholastic tests, 68 neuropsychological tests. I mean, it's a very copious study on um, 64 subjects uh, of all 43, then ADHD, placebo, and 
and the experimental study, you know, group. And whereas placebo group shows no improvements or no differences in anything. Really? Not not even like a little bump from the so placebo we, effect? In some some aspects of the training, uh, where placebo group still was looking at a screen, uh, we see some improvements in like decreasing anxiety from behavioral, just we call it behavioral, just looking at a screen. and But it's not correlated with reinforcement, everything else. Got it, okay. Uh, but it doesn't do harm to the brain. It was just passive watching of the screen, but it already helps. So behaviorally, we know that it already helps. And the placebo-controlled group of people, the control group. they don't know what they're even watching. No, they're just watching all, a screen. They all had headsets on. There was no. It was very well done study. And so huh. in experimental group, we see changes in EEG. We see different, totally different brain maps, which I'll share with you. I'll show you completely different brain maps, especially in the areas of executive functioning, prefrontal lobe, and even in the white matter, the area of like area for memory, hippocampal area, nucleus caudatus, and some other specific areas get activated. And what we were also surprised by, it was this area, which we call insula. It's in a specific part of the brain, very small area, which is this activation of insula is connected to empathy. When people feel, when people start feeling more empathy for others. And this also corresponds to our anecdotal reports with our clients say that they feel more aware and alert and feel more empathetic to their family members or their co-workers. And we see that on brain maps, only in experimental group and not in placebo group. Wow. So, and would you explain for people, because we're, kind of, you know, we're kind of starting to talk about the Think Interface um, technology now, and I think it might be a bit ambiguous to people still. So my subjective experience of it is I come to see you. I don't tell you about any of my problems or anything. You're just like sit in this chair. I put on a little headset that has these kind of electrodes. Yeah, it goes just like this, goes over sensors. your yeah, hair. Very We're much, actually the only ones can do it over the hair. Very much like this headset without yeah. the headphones and stuff, but kind of you know, a little a little apparatus that you kind of barely notice is there. And then you sit in front of a computer screen and uh, looks like a very primitive video game. There's just kind of a little car and then there's a cursor where your mouse is placed. And I was instructed to just follow the cursor, just like in a calm but focused way, just keep my attention on that cursor and do my best to not allow outside dialogue to enter into yeah. my awareness and just stay focused. And then just do that for about 45 minutes. Each time I do it, it's maybe two minutes or five minutes or whatever it is. It's hard to actually tell because you're kind of out of time, but, you're and then you'll time. come over and you'll start it over. And then I start a new screen and kind of do it again. And 45 minutes go by and I feel really good. The first day I noticed what was really actually interesting because nothing does this. Um, you know, when we sat down on the floor in your hotel room, you, yeah. I, and, and Allison, um, you two were just far away enough for me to be a little blurry in your face because I'm a bit, um, whatever it is, near, is it nearsighted? So distance gets a little blurry. And I was like, oh man. So I remember scooting closer to you so that I could have clarity and really see your face clearly. Because I kind of read lips too, because I'm a little deaf. Mm -hmm. um, so I like to see faces. And you got a great face and a great smile, as does Allison. <laughs> so anyway, I'm trying to get closer to you. Then I do the training. And afterward, 
I was as far away and you were both totally clear. My vision improved like that. And what's interesting about that is not only did it improve, but one of the things that makes my eyes more blurry is staring at a computer screen, especially as close as I was. I try to sit back from mine so I don't get that kind of frozen um, optic nerve or whatever it is. And I was like, that's weird because I just spent 45 minutes staring at a computer. Normally when I pull my head out of a computer, my vision is actually worse. Yeah. So that was really interesting. But just to give people an idea of, you know, what it's like for your average person to sit down and work with think interfaces, like you're basically just watching passively what looks to be, as I said, kind of like a video game. So that's, that's my version of it. But can you explain, um, say when it comes to something like ADHD or PTSD, what's actually happening when the subject sits there and calmly watches that computer screen? Yeah. First of all, thank you for explaining it so beautifully. You have a way of really very elegant expression through, through, you know, your, your language, which is really very sophisticated. And yet you transmit all this, you wrapped it up in such a beautiful way that, you know, it took us probably three years to try to (laughs) come up with something to explain to people how it really works. But you just did such a beautiful job. So thank you. Sure. Um, I'm going to transcribe that. You can have the recording. Oh, definitely. I'll be transcribing that. When someone calls you you guys and is like, what's it like? Listen to this. Yeah, absolutely. And transcribing it. And it's also very, it's very easy. You know, it's the thing too. It's not, it's not like, going to therapy or somewhere like, oh man, I got to talk about the shadow stuff today. It's going to be like, you're not thinking about your problems. You're not thinking about your PTSD. You have to not think. Yeah. It's funny. It's called think interfaces because (laughs) when you're actually going through the process, the goal is to not think. And it's actually very easy. I noticed like on a good meditation day, you know, there's very few thoughts, right? And you can really stay in that zero point. And then some days or some times of day, your mind will be more active, right? And you just through Vedic meditation, as you know, you just kind of learn to let the thoughts go, et cetera. You focus on the mantra. Well, in this case, the mantra is that cursor. And I noticed like, wow, I'm focusing for a really long period of time with no thought intrusion at all. So much so that when a thought did come, I was like, oh, there's a thought, Mm -hmm. which is pretty incredible. Like the degree of presence that I experience while I'm on the- There's a lot of um, other people's science that came into that. So before I actually- designed the the stimuli, the game. So for years, my specialty was stimulation of the retina and measuring the visual-spatial frequency. You can be checkerboards, bars, and movement of that in, you know, different temporal sequence. It can be one per second, one per every 20 20, uh, 10 seconds, one for every, you know, half a second. There are different responses that the brain, that the retina and the optical nerve will actually have depending on the visual spatial frequency and the temporal frequency in combination with visual spatial. So I studied that in response to dopaminergic transmission for many years at Mount Sinai Hospital and and at um, in Rome at San Camillo. So that was my specialty for many years, L-dopa, carbidopa response to visual stimulations and brain mapping and evokes potentials. Really quick, don't lose that thought, but I want to ask you something. Is you know the herb macuna? Yeah. I think it's a legume, like yeah. a bean or something. Yeah, macuna. And they say that it has L-dopa, the precursor to dopamine. Is there any truth to that? Like, yeah, would one is. have an easier time producing more dopamine if they're taking I only that? had two friends who had almost, um, you know, schizophrenic episodes because they took too much of macuna. Oh, okay. And so wow. there is, okay. there is something to it. Okay. It's just that um, I think as everything else, you have to know how to dose it. 
And that's why Think goes well. And I'll explain what we did with Think to not to overdose. Okay. And Sorry to interrupt. I'm no, just... no, but it's such a pertinent question. Yeah, it's so... It so brilliant. Your mind is just amazing. So fascinating to me. Um, so essentially, I studied about 1,300 papers that had to do with, with dopamine production and various stimulation, various interstimulus intervals. I mean, we're talking about all the technological, technical language that electrophysiologists or neurobehavioralists study in order to understand how does the brain uh, wire transmission actually in the brain goes, which then produces thoughts or produces um, you know, results one way or another. It can be impacting memory, it can be impacting your movement, it can be impacting your vision, for example, like what happens to you and to many. And um, the reason for that is because there are dopaminergic receptors in the retina. <laughs> so you actually stimulate a lot of dopamine and dopamine will produce then um, better vision. For wow, that. cool. So um, what happened with that? I studied something like 1,300 studies and I created a very large Excel spreadsheet. And I took all the elements that I wanted to have, like we wanted to be non-invasive, we wanted to be non, um, non, um, non-producing negative effects. So without negative effects, uh, we wanted to have a certain amount of regular, you know, regulation of the equalization of nervous vagus activity bilaterally in both hemispheres, um, because you know, nervous vagus is a Tenth cranial nerve with double nerves, so it's you have to activate it equally. Um, there, there are certain there were certain sets of parameters, about twenty five, that we wanted, and then we will log what these studies showed. You know, so it was basically a huge spreadsheet of thousand three hundred uh, data points. Oh my god! And that's my how, worst my worst nightmare: big Excel files. Right? <laughs> no, I, totally mine too, and I did not do it alone. Believe me. So uh, what we found, we found common denominators. Where was the safe? Where was the efficient? Where was the proper modality to go for? So that's where it's not neurofeedback because in neurofeedback you get you know whoever game you know you do and you here we have we have uh, frequencies of photovoltaic energy we have frequencies of sound we have frequencies of space temporal frequencies we have gazillion like hundreds of, of different modalities that we combined into you know visible and non-visible audible and non-audible. Into, you mean in terms of the biofeedback part of it, like what yeah. what the the brain of the user so the is experiencing with your frequencies of EEG frequencies and also some electromagnetic frequencies, and we we then pick up these sensors that are very sensitive, and they pick up in real time, feed it into the computer in real time, and you co-create the game with the computer. As you go along. So this is when, when I'm going so over the jumps. self-adjusting. When I'm going over the jumps, you'd be like, raise the jump, Luke, with yeah. your mind. Raise the jump. And you see how it rains. Some Jedi shit right there, by the way. That's, that's uh, basically Luke. the pro- pro- typical protokinesis, you know, telekinesis. But it's, 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 uh, these are these tools, we call them um, conscious uh, neurotechnology. Because it's, it's, it, it has an element of consciousness in it. Just like the universe is conscious. These apparatus that we create have elements of consciousness in them. Wow. So that's why we're breaking the barrier. And to, because you notice that it responds to your frequency of wavelengths of your brain. And it's not simple. It looks very simple. And my challenge was, and this is what, when I first proposed this to my group on my teams, 
they all thought I was crazy because they said, well, how, how can you do that? This is very heavy, very difficult to, to, not only do you want to create an EEG BCI, brain computer interface, but also you want to create these games that can be easily played by a smart three-year-old or demented 88-year-old and always have a good desired effect. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. I want something very simple. But we wanted to get to the point where we can create something that would not be one size fits all, but it would be self-tailoring to your own brain. So that's where it's not invasive. That's why it feels good to everybody, because you co-create the self-needing necessary levels of frequencies that your brain okay. needs. Because your brain is sentient. This is so wild. Okay. It's beyond, so, you know, it's like, yeah. it took us a while to get to the point where we can actually co-create that I feel more than 400 people. I feel for you it. as being the one that has to explain this to people. I'm, I'm starting to get it, but I'm going to go back to, to uh, neurofeedback. And, and, and I want you also, when we're done, maybe to define that, because I've done a lot of that and it's benefited me. I wouldn't say that it's like fixed me where I walked away. I was like, no more PTSD, but I've definitely made a lot of improvements. Helped, yeah. But the way I look at neurofeedback and correct me wherever I'm wrong and then differentiate what you're doing from neurofeedback perhaps is, okay, I'm hooked up to, hooked up to an EEG and it's it's uh, reading my brain waves and my brain waves are changing based on the stimuli I'm watching on a screen mm-hmm. in a similar way of kind of a primitive uh, video game. The way I experience neurofeedback is sort of like my brain watching itself and talking to it itself. Mm-hmm. And then my consciousness is kind of observing the phenomenon because I'm aware there's a me and a body with a brain sitting in a chair watching a screen. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like the brain is interfacing with the technology doing its own thing. And when there are rewards and stimuli and notifications and signals coming from the speakers and from the screen, then that's encouraging my brain to downregulate certain brain waves and encouraging it to upregulate yeah. the brain waves that I want. Is that a is that the basic idea of neurofeedback? Neuro, yeah, perfect. That's okay. exactly what it is. Okay. Except that they they create usually these games with people who are not um most of the neurofeedback technology that I know of is not created with sophisticated um with sophisticated um digital design. So the games, as you have seen, they hire groups of people who create games, but they, these specialists are not, they're specialists in gaming. They're not specialists in visual spatial frequencies or color frequencies or sound frequencies. They don't go down into fine detail where uh, okay, you can so. actually have subliminal input, uh, non-subliminal input and combination and what are the ratios and what are the ratios in temporal sequence, what are the ratios in audio sequence, what are the frequency ratios of visual frequency, audio frequency, and um, hue frequency, for example, and, and visual spatial frequency and intensity, all of that combined as ratios. Oh, interesting. It's much more complex as algorithm, and I don't believe that so far, that to my knowledge, that I've seen many on the market done you know, what we would call properly. You know, they take the game and it's usually one a second, one every second, one every 10 seconds. It's some sort of a reward. It's based on Skinnerian principle and it's very, it's useful. But again, the, one of the thing is that you have to glue the, the, or you're wet with the electrodes and they're not very easy to put on. Or they're a little shaved, you know, they shave the part of your head and put the electrode on with the glue. Um, or 
they put a cap, which is really complex again. And then also the, the game is done again in that way. So it's kind of very, it's almost binary. Got it. You That's know? interesting. Although, although subjectively, when you're doing neurofeedback training, you're basically doing something very similar. You're sitting there watching a screen and you're kind right. of observing that. Right. But what you're saying is that what's going on kind of sub-perceptually with think is infinitely more complex infinitely in more terms complex. of the feedback yeah. mechanism, right? So like, so it's like you can sit in a chair like this in a spacecraft or you can sit in a chair like this in a little bicycle that you pedal. <laughs> That's funny. I love it with your accent too. And I, you know, like I said, no, this is not a diss on neurofeedback. I oh, love I, it. I've done a lot I like of it. But, but I also know that you got to do a lot of hours of neurofeedback yeah. uh, for a long time to really move the needle. I mean, I did this biocybernaut, you know, in, in Sedona. It was, I think, like seven days and went there for 12 hours a day. And it's just, it's grueling, you know. I mean, it's not for the faint at heart. Okay. And then did a bunch at Peak Brain LA, um, all sorts of different training there with Dr. Andrew Hill, and 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 I love it. But the time and money commitment is is a concern. You know, I mean, yeah. these programs are very expensive. Yeah. I think it's like fifteen thousand dollars now to go to BioCyberNot. You know, and you got to yeah. travel and get an Airbnb and the whole thing. I mean, it's 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 a rich person's game. You know that. Um, although I'm sure they're altruistic practitioners that see kids that are less fortunate, et cetera. But I think what you're doing is interesting because it's just so fast. Thanks. And even when you told me, you're like, yeah, five sessions will accomplish this, Luke. You know, the PTSD or, you know, just better mental performance, focus, sleep, whatever, vision, et cetera. And I'm kind of like, oh, five, that's not going to do anything. You know, I mean, that's what I'm thinking talking to you. I, I believe you, but I'm like, yeah, but I mean, it's going to take like 20 times, right? At least, or we got to do a six month run. And as I said, it's really interesting. After It's th- all in precision. After three days, I'm like, I feel very different. It's yeah, wild. and it'll stay like that because you're routing your brain and you're, you're creating your new, new neuroplasticity in your brain, but also at the level of, um, you know, quantum field, you're creating, you're basically accessing your bio blueprint in your photovoltaic area that you are resetting your photovoltaic energetic field, if you want to. Oh, okay. And so you're repairing holes where there were holes, if there were some, or the, the energy, uh, literally the voltaic energy, electrophysiological energy is resetting itself. And is so, there any impact on blood flow in, in the brain yes. from think interfaces? Yeah. What, so what, what's what happening do, with blood we flow? We have the data on, you know, from fMRIs and MRIs. So the blood flow gets encouraged. And then uh, we also have, uh, we're, we're now, we accomplished one study that was very long. And uh, so finally we managed to, you know, publish it and set it up for publication. And now the second part will be tapping into genetics because we'll be drawing also blood and taking samples from the hair and um, showing um, and also measuring um, DAT scans and CAT scans because we want to see at the level of the brain where exactly do we see the increase in uh, activation of dopaminergic receptors D1, D3, D5, what is, what is really going on and where. And so we're going down to genetic and epigenetic. Wow. Studies. Is, so that's, is, it's is, very is that intense. your phone vibrating? <laughs> it's probably because we got to go. <laughs> I was watching the clock, which is my job, not yours. And I'm like, we're, we've been 90 minutes right now. But I'm like, 
I honestly thought we would probably be good hour and 15 minutes, maybe hour and a half. And I'm like, I have a lot more notes here. Go, go. Um, but we'll, I'll, I'll be mindful of the time. I'm just, there's so much more to gain for the there audience. Is so much more. And something we haven't really talked about. I guess this is, if I had to choose we something to cover. We can have another session. We'll have to, yeah, we'll, we'll have, have part two, part three we will, for the we will. neuroscience symposium. We will, <laughs> for sure. Um, but for those, for those listening, something I did want to touch on was Parkinson's. I know that that was, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of your focus. And of course, it's something that's related to issues with dopamine. So maybe if you could just break down what Parkinson's is, uh, if we know what causes it and how Think Interfaces has been so effective in helping okay. people with that. I'll be very brief, but I'll try to be. So um, Parkinson usually is is idiopathic or non-idiopathic, meaning uh, that it comes through your own body, through your own genetics, supposedly, or you got it because you got intoxicated one way or another. You had some injection of something or you were exposed to lead, you were exposed to some toxic material, you develop tremors. Generally, when you have this unhealthy fluctuation of dopamine in your brain, uh, you end up feeling you know, your, your motricity is affected. So this is where dopamine impacts the motric uh, nerves and motric abilities. Oh, so is this you, why you start, your gait starts being different, your, your movement of your diaphragm, your voice gets uh, attenuated, your prosody and your speech is different, slurred usually, even the vision gets worse, the cognitive functions get worse, and uh, people start um, developing tremors as well. So the way that you replace that or you try to heal normal neurology right now, allopathic neurology tries to heal Parkinson through um, giving people L-dopa, carbidopa, cinemet or something like that. That was my, actually my dissertation in Rome was an L-dopa, carbidopa in idiopathic and non-idiopathic Parkinson with evoked, visual evoked potentials. <laughs> so that's what I was studying for like 10 years. And um, I, what happens also nowadays, Oliver Sacks and some others were proposing boxing and ballroom dancing because that coordinates your left and right uh, part of the body, left and right part of nervous vagus, both activations, and constant motion creates elevated dopamine. So people actually do better if they box, if they uh, train with motions, you know, physical motions. Also, elation because boxing makes you elated. Oh, interesting. And I wonder dancing if, makes you. I wonder elated. if that's why when I went and got a spec scan from uh, Dr. Daniel Amen out in yeah. California, part of his prescription for me because he found some, he called them sleepy parts of my brain yes. that really uh -huh. lacked blood flow. And I, uh, I watched that episode. Oh, you did. And he recommended two things primarily. One, he said, "Don't do ayahuasca," <laughs> which I ignored. But he said, uh, "You got to play ping pong all the time and do hyperbaric oxygen." And yeah. I never played ping pong once. Yeah. But I did get a chamber and it helped me a lot. Chamber, yeah, because yeah. it gives you so much oxygen, yeah. yeah. But ping pong is also just because it, it gives you coordination of the muscle. and, oh, and okay. It's, it's immediate immediate gratification of the ping. Does it the have pong, the dopamine thing it, in it? Okay. It stimulates the dopamine. Cool. It's a very nice way. Or boxing is great too. What if you get hit in the head boxing yeah, and get a TBI? <laughs> so I think the boxing for Parkinson is more like air boxing. Shadow boxing, yeah. like on a bag and stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay, so... And for those listening, I think the perhaps the most noteworthy person that you might recognize the uh, symptoms of Parkinson would be Michael J. Fox, right? Yeah. Is that what he has? Yeah. yeah. So for yeah. those, you know, that are like, wait, what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever 
had an opportunity to to speak with him or his yes, people? Yes, at the, the fundraiser, you know, fundraisers where we I went to several of his fundraisers and um, his team. You know, he has a fabulous team of people, and one of our our team members actually is. I think has received grants and, and has worked as an advisor for that. Jean-Christophe Carval has uh, worked with him, with, with the foundation. Got it. And so from what you were telling me, this is one of the biggest success stories about Think is really substantially helping people with Parkinson's. Is that? Yeah. Well, mostly I think concussion and, and trauma, PTSD. Where it helps the most is PTSD, concussion, and ADHD. Okay. And then Parkinson really helps tremendously. You've seen some of the cases yeah. yourself. Your videos are crazy. Yeah, yeah. She guys, she shows me these before and after videos, yeah. like literally like the person sitting down in the chair and they're having a lot of difficulties with their Absolutely. motor skills. And then they do the training and she shows them walking. You have, have them on your iPhone, right? And, you know, this older man is walking and kind of, you know, a little not Balance he couldn't do it. He takes five, six steps. Yeah, yeah. And then later on, he takes one step. One session, two. and then he's like ballerina. Poof, yep. walks right back. It's crazy. I but love stuff see, like that. That's beautiful. It's really so rewarding. Yeah. But I think that also I don't want to get the viewers, the 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 audience, the wrong impression that it happens always the same with everybody. It doesn't. In Parkinson, it's a very strange, um, you know, affect, affect disorder. It actually people can respond perfectly well and some people get really better and stay better some people it just slows down their progression of parkinson and some people don't respond fully you know there is a at least 10 percent that doesn't really um they have to have it re regularly okay got it but they still derive benefit from oh, it it's de just definitely. okay definitely and what um, studies or research have you done with this technology specifically around parkinson's we just have um patients that we have taken and we have seen that their tremor and um, cognition improves. And we have regular battery that we do, you know, Luria Nebraska test and some specific soft neurological exam and gross motor exams that we take at the beginning. We have that on videos as well. And uh, then we also present, oftentimes our patients go back to, our clients go back to their neurologists and then we communicate with neurologists so we haven't we have tons of data yeah but because it takes so much time and so much effort um you know i just finished this one large study on adhd and anxiety as well it had some anxiety data in there too and now we also had two pilot studies on concussion and some other things and you know so we we have the data in our computers, but we haven't analyzed it yet. But we have data for possible study that we can publish. Cool. Yeah, so exciting. So exciting because that's, I mean, I've not known personally, I don't think anyone with Parkinson's, but I've, I've known, you know, oh, yeah. by a degree of separation, people whose parents have it and stuff. And it's just like, it's oh hard. man, oh, it's brutal. It's brutal, especially because it's, yeah, these are people that were just functioning normally. And for, I don't know, for some reason, maybe because it's not like, cancer or something like that where you know you really hit the the alarm and you could potentially die but it seems as though people with parkinson's live for a very long time but their quality of life is just so yeah. greatly diminished you know it's just like god you got to find a way to help it's these very people hard. so it's very rewarding when you see them really do oh well. my god i bet i bet yeah, no i mean it's just so such a bless blissful life and blessing to to be able to help people yeah it is so you know? i know we're we're about out of time i have 
57. That was Micah, by the way. Oh, it was? He was like, where are you? All right, all right, I'm going to get you out of here. It's 6.30. Oh, God, okay. Tell It's totally my fault, Micah. No. If you're watching this Instagram I live. I think we're enjoying this so much. No, I know. Really it's, it's so good, but I want to be respectful of your, your client's time and whatnot. Um, I guess what I want to ask you is, okay, so I was fortunate enough to, to know you and Alice and I have been able to do, you know, the think yeah. training with you. And I'm so grateful the for that. Gratitude and fortune is And I know too. you have a number of different scientists and partners that you're doing all kinds of developments with. But if, if someone right now wanted to experience this, I mean, do they have to seek you out and you're the person that could do the training with them? Um, or do you see the scaling in a way where, you know, you're going to hire other practitioners that have the systems and things like that? What what does access look like for people listening right now? And what do you see in the near future in terms of availability for Thank this you. training? Thank you for asking. Um, right now, it's me running clients one-on-one in person uh, for difficult situations. I also conduct virtually the training, which is only this behavioral part and in the quantum field. And that can also be done, but it's also 45 minutes with me. So there is my website, thinkinterfaces.com, which you can post if you want yeah, to. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. We can, and then they can just fill the form in and send the email. And either my team or myself will respond. And I'll be honored and glad to help. Um, in about two years, hopefully, we're going to have this out to the world as you know a system just like you have this you know um, audio system that you can put on your head and then you can coordinate it with your iphone or ipad or or computer and that will be available to everybody at a very reasonable price we're hoping to scale it so that we can actually really not charge a lot and my dream would be really to work with people who have both ptsd the veterans and uh, children and adults who you know come from the dumps now, especially now in the situation with, with, you know, with the world is growing to the next level. Um, we have these stresses and traumas from the 3D experiences that this planet has gone through and millions of children and adults who have suffered. And it would be my utmost honor and pleasure and goal to actually be able to finance uh, and give this for free to people to, to really heal themselves through THINK. And that's my goal. That's why I'm working hard on that because I have a mission. You know, this really found me. I did not find it. And I think this is why I came here to help people now in this crisis in this time. And um, I'm, you know, I just always work towards it. So that's what my goal is to cool. scale it to the levels so that we can possibly have some ideas together as well Absolutely. on how to help the world. And, um, but for the moment, it's just uh, me and a few, and then we're having, you know, possibility of also sale of a license. Um, I think I spoke to you about including a few groups so that we can actually form a group, and then maybe these practitioners can then have that in their intimate cool. uh, offices, and then yeah. they can reach out at least to. That'd many be neat more. because the the data would multiply, right? Absolutely. That's that's so, research so is much good. value on that. This is reaching many more people you yeah, know yeah. the goal is to heal people yeah totally well thank you so much i thank have you. i have one last question for you and you can whiz through it just whatever comes to mind first so you've taught me in the audience immense uh knowledge today who have oh. been three teachers or teachings that have influenced you in your work that you might share with us oh <laughs> very nice question <laughs> oh. well people like yourself 
you know. So this was a tremendous learning experience tonight. And in general, you know, your breadth of knowledge and the way that you come with your candid heart and sincere desire to actually better this world, that's type of, you know, incredible, priceless experiences. But if I were to name the teachers who are really, uh, it's usually one of this is having a child. It's been a tremendous teaching experience. Really learned so much and still learning through my daughter. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always go into philosophy of life. So the philosophy of life, and of course I had some incredible teachers, and there were a few that really taught me tremendous amounts from whom I studied. But, um, you know, spiritual teachers, one of them is Tom Knowles, and there are several others, Anad Mehrata and some others from Himalayas that I worked with, and um, Abani Biswas in Rome. I mean, worked with Vedic meditation and Vedic world for three decades now, really seriously. And um, I think that there are, there are people who, are peacemakers, especially in now this world. You know, I learned a lot indirectly through Mahatma Gandhi and probably I'm not even naming names now because the world is one big school, you know. But I think for me personally, what resonates is every everything that goes through the heart and through true value, the truth, true values of, of the world, especially awesome. now we're all unified. Thank so, you so much. So thank you. Yeah. So thinkinterfaces.com is the site. Yes. Okay. We'll put it in the show notes. Thank, thank you, you so much, Lana. I'm so, thank you so much. I'm so happy you well, came to Texas. Me too. Like what a, what a gift you are as a woman. And, and what a gift you are. And a scientist. <laughs> and, and thank you so light, much for. Shining light. And just thank you so much for uh, getting the experience of, of your technology. I can't wait to do more oh, um, before you go. It's come. just like, I discover a lot of cool stuff and. You know, some of it's fun and interesting and novel, but I really think you're onto something Thank you. profound. Thank you. Here, I still so. haven't sh- shared my scientific, you know, paper and all of that. We'll have to dive into that. We will, and and also on that note, uh, if there's anything you want me to put in the show notes, we can do that too. Any of oh, the brain you. mapping or yeah. studies, any of the stuff you've done, we'll pack it into the show notes. So, yeah, you know, especially for the people that are really data driven, you know, yep. can get in and be like, I don't know, it sounds kind of woo woo. It's like you've really done a lot of hard science on this. So, thank you. I think that adds a Brilliant lot of value. Thinking. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Lana. Thank you. Thank you so much, Luke. Once again, I end this episode and I think, man, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm so fortunate to be able to not only meet people like Dr. Lana, but to have the opportunity to work with them and then share their brilliance with listeners like you. So thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that this episode was uh, as expansive for you as it was for me because you made it to the end. So you must have heard something you liked, right? I know whoever's at the end of the podcast was feeling it, you know, because I'm a podcast listener first and foremost. I mean, I listen to podcasts literally every day and I know my favorite shows. Maybe I'll tell you about them someday. But my favorite shows, I'm literally like uh, drooling for more at the end of the show. I mean, that's how much I love a great podcast. So Thank you so much for hanging in there with us. I know this conversation uh, was pretty deep and it got complex at times. And uh, I trust that you benefited. If you did, you know my request, share it with a friend. You know, if you have someone that's got brain fog or ADD or PTSD, any of the things we talked about, uh, even if they don't have the opportunity to work with Dr. Lana, it's not possible for everyone depending on where they are in the world and how they're situated financially, et cetera. But 
I think there was a lot of valuable information in here uh, that people can use to get educated about that thing inside their skull. If you are someone that's like, wow, I want to try this out, uh, I get it. I would too, had I heard the conversation you just heard, because that's what I did. Again, uh, Dr. Lana has offered a very generous 10% off that'll save you a few hundred dollars uh, by going to thinkinterfaces.com. And if you mention the code Luke 10, that's how that happens. And uh, I don't know, shoot him an email. She'll probably jump on the phone with you. I don't, I don't know if she'll be able to do that once she's on this podcast, but I know with friends I've sent uh, her way, she's had introductory calls with them and you know explained everything to them and made it very clear what it's all about. Uh, she's currently located in Austin, Texas, which is you know my good fortune, I guess, right? Allison's done some training with her too and had great results. So if you're able to get to Austin or anywhere that Lana happens to be uh, seeing people, well, I highly encourage that you give it a shot or at least explore it. Because as I said in the intro, um, I don't know, man, I've done a lot of stuff and I've made so much progress over the years with all of the different nootropics and, you know, smart drugs and microdosing and neurofeedback and the hyperbaric chamber and all the stuff. And I think that it's all obviously helped. Otherwise I wouldn't have kept doing it. But after my training with Lana, um, I'm just, I'm on another level, like my ability to focus. I mean, I think that's the main thing, like focus and memory. It's just like, I feel younger I'm not trying to sell you guys on this. It's honestly, it sounds like an infomercial, but it's just the truth, man. It's just, it's crazy. And now that she's here in town, uh, I'm going to do more. I don't, I don't think that you need to, but if I can manage to do so, I will. Uh, I think her normal training for people that aren't heavily compromised is around five sessions. And I did uh, six at first. And then I did one more quick one when she's up through town a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know, to me, if it gets any better than this, I've won the lottery of brain function. So I'm stoked. So thank you so much for joining me on this journey. Next week, we've got a bit of a departure. That's episode 377. And this one is for my freedom fighters out there. It's, it's none other than Zuby. I don't know if you know Zuby, but if you do, you just got stoked. If you don't, you're going to be stoked when you hear it. That episode's called The Antidote to Wokeness, Cultural Marxism, Tyranny, and Social Division. Now, Prior to the pandemic, I didn't really talk about social issues, politics. It's just not, it's not my lane. It's not my area of expertise. It's not something that I'm terribly interested in. I'm more about the inner journey, right? But as things have unfolded, uh, I have found it necessary to um, share my point of view because I think we are really at a turning point. I don't see it as a doomsday turning point. However, I think if more of us don't have the courage to uh, share our thoughts and ideas on what's happening that it could end up in a seriously irreversible dystopian nightmare. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. So I had actually a really, it sounds like a heavy episode, but Zuby is super down to earth and really funny. Uh, he's a British guy with an American accent. And um, man, he's just got a way of framing this stuff that makes perfect sense to me. It's just like so common sense and basic and relatable and also open. I mean, Zuby's message is one of unity and bringing people together despite our differences in opinions and lifestyle and cultures and all that stuff. So I really enjoyed that conversation. I can't wait to share that one with you. And it uh, has nothing to do with health. It's more about mental health and psychology and really resilience, right? Mental and emotional resilience and positivity and human connection. So it's a bit more uh, psychological, but I'm excited to drop that one. And I'm probably going to piss a few people off with that, but what are you going to do? I like the guy. He's one of my two favorite 
Twitter follows. You know, I think that's how I found Zuby. I was like, God, how, how do you do that? And what is that, 100, 240 characters or something? I always run out of space. Uh, so now my tweets are just like four, four words, very few characters, and they probably don't make a lot of sense because they're mostly just memes that I can't get away with posting on Instagram. Uh, speaking of posting, you know, I, I have like two followers on Twitter. I, I'm not witty enough to really get a Twitter following. And uh, I have to really, you know, be mindful with my um, info sharing on Instagram because it's gone just so, so commie. Uh, so I started a Telegram channel and that's where I just dump all the shit that I find in the world, all the news, all the memes that I would get probably banned off every other platform if I shared publicly. It's sad that it's that way, but um, I'm also not on a suicide mission where I'm going to nuke my entire brand to try to save the world. I still have a lot of great information to share, like the episode that you just heard with Dr. Lana. In fact, if we could get the whole goddamn world to do the Think Interfaces training and just heal everyone's PTSD, we could all just calm down and chill the hell out. <laughs> so I think I'm making my mark, but um, there are times when I feel like, oh my God, I just have to have someone on the show to like talk some sense into the world. And I think Zuby did a great job of doing that. So with that, my friends, we will exit. And uh, I can't wait to be back with you next Tuesday. Mm-hmm.